1983 and 1984, there was a huge and mysterious die-off. That was the one that was the most common throughout the Caribbean. They died so quickly, whatever the pathogen was, spread so fast that scientists still don't know what it was. We're back with Sandy Sheehy. We're talking about her book, Imperiled Reef, The Fascinating Fragile Life of a Caribbean Wonder. I have so many questions. You said that it paired well with The Sound of the Sea, the book we talked about last week, and it's absolutely true. These books should just be sold together. A beautiful pairing, and her book is about shells. Your book is about reefs, kind of a specific reef, but also in both cases, both of your books are broadly about the ocean and how we use it and how we interact with it, how it interacts with us. It's an important topic that I think not enough people are paying attention to. It's a lot of the world, the ocean, so we should be paying a lot of attention to it. So my first question is, what is a barrier reef and how is it different from a different kind of reef? One of the really cool things I learned in researching this book was that the definition of barrier reefs and the distinguishing factors of barrier reefs from other reefs that Charles Darwin, as a young man, 28 years old, long before he wrote his famous Origin of the Species, how he identified barrier reefs still stands. It's still what scientists say, yep, he was right. So in general, if you think about, say, islands in the Pacific or islands in the Eastern Caribbean, a volcano erupts from a thin place in one of the Earth's plates. It erupts far enough above the surface that it forms an island. Eventually, a fringe reef will grow around that island. It'll be the kind of shallow reefs that, let's say you stay in a beach cottage somewhere in the Caribbean, and you just put on your snorkeling gear and you go out there, that's what you're seeing as the fringe reef. That's what's close to shore. The island will start subsiding. Eventually, it will disappear, and the reefs that formed around it will become an atoll. And some of them may accrue enough hard coral that they go above the surface, and they may become little islands themselves. But these won't be like the great big dramatic mountain, Mauna Kai or Mauna Loa, that was in the middle of the atoll before it subsided. These will be little flat spots of what the English-speaking Caribbean call ironshore. A barrier reef is what those reefs become, or in the case of Australia and Central America, these can also form offshore because they start out as fringe reefs off the continent rather than off a volcano, as the sea levels rise, they rise with corals accreting and become a barrier reef. And barrier reefs, you seem to have some knowledge of the East Coast and of New England, (laughs) (laughs) where the protection from storms, the protection of the continent is essentially sandbars. And islands like Long Island, that are sandbars that have gotten a little higher because more sand is washed up onto them. In tropical parts of the world, the protection is from the hard coral reefs, the barrier reefs. 
It's one of the reasons they're important, whether you're just completely human-centric and you don't think we should care at all about the rest of the environment or feel any responsibility for it. If you don't have coral reefs protecting, say, the Yucatan in Mexico or Belize or Australia, then you're going to have storms that just batter the coastline. Let's say Puerto Rico, too, since that's my people. So I've never snorkeled on a barrier reef. I've snorkeled on a fringe reef in Puerto Rico and Culebra specifically. Did you ever dive there? No, it's on my list. <laughs> so it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's magical. For people who don't know, what is coral? Is coral a rock? I know the answer, but I want you to explain it. Okay, first of all, there are two kinds of corals, hard corals and soft corals. All corals are colonies of animals that function interdependently. Hard corals, the ones we think of, hey, that's coral. Everybody would say, yep, that's coral. They look like rocks or they look like trees. You know, they're steady in place. They don't wave around. Those are the exoskeletons of little bitty animals that branch out. They come out, they build these exoskeletons as a protection and they live inside of these as a little tube. And then they come out and with their tentacles catch their food from the water. They don't move around. They can't leave that column that they're in and go out and swim around and then come home. They have to depend on what washes by. Then there are soft corals, which look to us a lot like plants. And they may look like fans. They look like whips. They've got some flexibility in their skeletons. Their skeletons still are calcium carbonate, but they function more flexibly. And you can often actually see the tentacles. And in most cases, if you do touch them, you won't touch them twice. They'll sting you or they'll itch terribly. Actually, most people say, oh, I hit some fire coral. Well, most corals that you come in contact with are going to scrape you or some of the little critters or the food that they're eating or whatever will irritate your skin. Hard corals have algae that live symbiotically with them. When we talk about coral bleaching, we don't mean that it's dead. We mean that it has expelled these algae that live symbiotically with it and that give them their color. So without the algae, they're going to look stark white and skeletal and awful. It means that they're in terrible trouble. They may starve to death because what the algae does is the algae uses the waste products of the coral to help it photosynthesize and make glucose that the coral then consumes and so on. Sun into rocks. Yes. And without the algae, the coral itself can't do that. Why does the coral bleach itself? Because the water temperature gets too high or the acidity gets too high. Or in some cases, too many people are using sunscreen that has oxybenzene in it or other chemicals that are poisonous to corals or poisonous to their algae. It sounds like the coral equivalent of a fever where it gets too warm and then it gets diarrhea and gets rid of all its helpful bacteria. Yeah, that's a good analogy to use. 
So maybe we should tell people that if you snorkel with the wrong kind of sunscreen, the coral will shit all over you. Yes. (laughs) And it's not good for it, okay? It's in the ICU. Coral bleaching is a pretty widespread problem at this point, right? It is, but it's amazing. When I saw almost no coral bleaching in the Bay Islands of Honduras in the week I was diving there last week, it had healed. And it can heal if the conditions become attractive to those algae again. So I saw maybe five or 10, in doing 10 or 12 dives, I saw five or 10 patches of bleaching that were about the size of my hand all around various islands. That seems like that might be like normal, even just because that's going to happen sometimes. And The reason for that, and I hope we'll get to it, we could get to it later, but the reason for that is largely efforts that the local people have cooperated on. I do want to ask about a few more specific marine animals, sea urchins. So I remember in Puerto Rico snorkeling, sea urchins were just everywhere. I remember seeing them everywhere. I accidentally touched them. I stepped on them. You'd see their shells everywhere. I remember when I was snorkeling, for example, off Oahu or Bay, Hanimao Bay, which is a great snorkeling place, not far from Honolulu, that you stood at the edge of the water and you kind of shuffled your feet with your fins on them in. And as soon as you could possibly flop down, you did, because otherwise you'd wind up getting a sea urchin spine in your foot. In 1983 and 1984, there was a huge and mysterious die-off of one particular species of sea urchin. That was the one that was the most common throughout the Caribbean. They died so quickly, whatever the pathogen was, spread so fast that scientists still don't know what it was. Wow. And what are the implications of no more sea urchins? Well, the sea urchins eat macroalgae that smothers the reefs. So do parrotfish, so do king crabs, some turtles browse on algae, but the sea urchins are the ones that really keep it clean. So there are several reasons that reefs are kind of more of a khaki-colored brown than they used to be. And you see a couple of spots of bright color and you think, oh boy, isn't that something? Well, it used to be that a lot more of it was brightly colored. What you're seeing now is more algae. And it's because the sea urchins aren't there to do their job. But coming back a little bit, sort of in the northeastern part of the Caribbean, like the U.S. and British Virgin Islands, they're coming back a bit. They're coming back everywhere, but very slowly. And we still don't know what caused it. And that's interesting. It started at the end of the Caribbean end of the Panama Canal. The implication, the circumstantial evidence, is that it was probably something that was brought on the hull of one or more ships coming from the Pacific Ocean. This particular kind of spiny sea urchin is not native to the Pacific. It's native to the Atlantic and the Caribbean and, you know, parts of the Atlantic. So whatever it was, the Caribbean black spiny sea urchins didn't have any natural developed defenses against it. That's the best theory of how it did. 
the Panama Canal has made a lot of our lives easier in many ways, but the shipments that go through it, and it was a fabulous work of engineering, but it also has caused a number of environmental problems. I never thought about this, but of course, connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean would have some implications. Well, especially if you do it with very large ships, there are regulations about where they can flush their ballast. For example, the lionfish, an invasive species, one of the theories about how lionfish, the population of lionfish exploded was that they came in the holds of these huge ships. And think about the Panama Canal. I mean, even a 3,000-passenger cruise ship is small compared to some of these big freighters that go through. So when they flush the bilge, all kinds of things that came from the Indian Ocean or the Pacific Ocean can go right into the Caribbean. So the other thought, because of when the lionfish began showing up, was that they may have been because of, I think it was Hurricane Andrew, a big hurricane that hit the Miami and Fort Lauderdale area. Lionfish are very beautiful and very popular as aquarium fish. So it may have hit people's houses, broken their aquariums, and the lionfish may have escaped into the ocean. (laughs) That seems so much less likely than that they came over in the bilge of a ship. Yes, yes. (laughs) And the other is that somebody moving from Fort Lauderdale to Chicago wouldn't take their aquarium full. Now, if they were an aquarist, they might take several big aquaria with them, but they would empty them out. So, you know, oh, somebody went to the beach or somebody flushed their aquarium down their toilet or something. That is also not as likely. Now, all of those things could have happened. It's not mutually exclusive, but I really think hitching a ride on a ship through the Panama Canal or on several ships through the Panama Canal is the more likely one. And what do the lionfish do? What's their implication? I read some diver say something that the rule of thumb is anything in the ocean, if it's beautiful, it's dangerous. Yeah, well, that's supposedly one of the reasons that fish in the ocean have evolved various bright colorations and so on is so that predators may take a bite out of one of them and then say, ooh, boy, that made me sick. I'm not going to eat another one of those bright blue things. So the lionfish are very distinctive. They have no natural predators. This is the important point because everything in the ecosystem of the Mesoamerican barrier reef or any part of the ocean is dependent on a balance of predators and prey. And as you said, things that convert sunlight into rocks or fuel of some sort. So the lionfish don't have any natural predators. They are very adaptive. You can find them 30 or 50 feet below the surface, and you can find them down 600 feet. Sports divers don't go down to 600 feet, but people in research vessels have found them that deep. And they are amazingly fecund. They reproduce, I would say like rabbits, but much more than rabbits. And they have large clutches of eggs. So they are able to kind of take over and they compete for food with things like snapper and grouper and other kinds of things 
in the environment. So you wind up having fewer of the fish you're used to seeing and more lionfish. They are venomous, but not poisonous. That sounds like a minor distinction, but... It's not. A snake is venomous, but you can eat rattlesnake meat and not suffer any harm. So the fish, the meat of the lionfish is quite yummy. It's sort of like grouper or snapper. You know, it's a nice, mild fish that if you're a good cook or you're a professional chef, you can dress it up or dress it down and do lots of stuff with it. The problem is that the spines are venomous. So if you touch them, you get a nasty sting or you may even get sick. If you heat them, not even terribly hot, but that destroys the venom. So if you're in a village in Belize and the lady is wanting to sell you a necklace made out of lionfish spines, those spines didn't hurt her and they're not going to hurt you. So there are a couple of ways that the people along the Caribbean and in Florida are trying to control lionfish. One is to have what are called lion hunts. And in many places in the Caribbean, it's illegal to spearfish anything except lionfish. And you can buy a special kind of a Hawaiian sling fishing spear that is bright yellow. You get an hour or two of training at the fishing gear store, and then they give you a license to go hunt lionfish. And some dive resorts, even some communities like Pensacola, Florida, has an annual quote-unquote lion hunt and a lionfish festival. They have competitions among teams that go out and see how many lionfish they can get. The other thing is that some divers are actually trying to teach moray eels and groupers to recognize lionfish as prey and consume it in ways that are safe to them. So from the back to the front, so that the spines don't stick up, they lie down. And then the moray eels digestive system takes care of that. Can eels learn that kind of thing? Apparently, yes. And this is not like in controlled research centers or aquariums. There are places where the researchers have gone out and fed lionfish to the eels and then seen free-swimming moray eels go after lionfish. So tell us about lobster fishing in Mexico. There's a chapter in your book about lobsters and how they regulate the lobsters, and tell us about how that all works. Well, first of all, I'm not a huge lobster fan of any kind of lobsters. I don't dislike them, but I sort of have never seen what the fuss was. Right, because you've never been to the lobster festival in Rockland, Maine, every August. The Caribbean lobsters don't have those nice meaty claws that the North American or American lobster have. And the cold water lobsters you're talking about that are native to New England and the Canadian Maritimes and so on, those have a nice big meaty claw. Now, what we call the lobster tail, and by the way, if you eat a lobster at, say, the chain red lobster, you're not eating the ones with the claws. Doesn't matter what the sign says. You're eating a Caribbean spiny lobster. <laughs> if you're eating lobster at red lobster, you don't care about distinctions between species of lobsters. That's very <laughs> yeah. true. Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> so the lobsters are very popular in the Caribbean among tourists. Overfishing is a problem with all food species, especially in the Caribbean and other places where there are people who are living fairly subsistence levels. They may fish commercially, but maybe a lot of the fishing that they do is just to feed their extended families. And lobsters that are large are more valuable sold to, say, middlemen on the dock who then sell them to restaurants and hotels. For a long time, fishermen have known not to take little juveniles or young lobsters because they say, oh, those will grow up to be big lobsters. And besides, I'm not going to get that much money for this little lobster anyway. But what has only recently been recognized is that really big adults shouldn't be taken either because they actually reproduce exponentially. So by taking a big male or a big female, you're not just removing it from the reproductive cycle in proportion to its size, you're removing it in proportion to the square of its size. So a lot of the areas have regulations where you can't take lobsters over a certain size. Also, some of the fishing cooperatives in the Caribbean, especially in Mexico, have gotten together and they've started making what are called casitas, sometimes casitas cubanas, They're little houses that they make generally with a flat piece of concrete and maybe a couple of cinder blocks propping it up so it slants. And besides human beings, one of the main things that limits the lobster population is safe places for lobsters to have their dens. And they're generally aren't enough in coral reefs. So by putting out more of these casitas, the lobsters have a safe place to grow to size without being eaten by, say, a grouper or a snapper or a shark. The cooperatives are working to be able to collectively sell the whole lobsters for more than they would sell. Instead of just selling the tails, they get more money if they sell the whole lobster, less money per pound, but more money for the whole lobster. So they're promoting that and they're promoting in the hotels and restaurants in the area. First of all, not having a lobster of any kind available during the breeding season, the off season, the no-take season. And then secondly, having the restaurants charge more for sustainably raised lobsters. And this is working. Yeah, it is working. When you go diving, you see more lobsters. And there are also areas where you can't take them at all. And the local people understand that what that means is that they will migrate to areas where they can be taken. You get overpopulation, an intense population or not intense, but you get too many lobsters in the area where they're protected. Some of them are going to move. That makes perfect sense. I should just be clear that we're not talking about lobsters here. We're talking about those weird Caribbean lobsters. We're not talking about New England lobsters with a pincha and a crusher. You're not okay. <laughs> You're talking about sandbugs, right? Yeah, exactly. Vermin. Yeah. 
my last question is, you know, your book is called Imperiled Reef, which leads the reader to believe that the reef is imperiled. But you end on as hopeful a note as possible. What can we do to save the Mesoamerican reef? What can we individually do right now? First of all, consume seafood mindfully. Go look at lists of which species are endangered, which of them aren't, which of them, for example, like lionfish, are not only not endangered, but are creating problems, and buy accordingly. That includes when you're at home and you're buying from the seafood market in Connecticut or California. It also applies, especially when you travel. Go ahead and be willing to pay a little bit more for something that was raised or that was caught sustainably and that had an opportunity to contribute to its ecosystem before you became the apex predator, (laughs) which you are. Then the other thing is travel mindfully. People say, well, yeah, I'm going to get on one of these huge cruise ships. And there was some improvement seen, by the way, in the Caribbean and along the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef during the strict quarantine part of the COVID pandemic, when there weren't any cruise ships sailing. But you take a ship that has five or 6,000 people on it, because if it's a 3,000-passenger ship, it's got 2,000 crew. Almost all of those passengers get off in the little port that has become regrettably dependent on tourism, might have a population of the whole city of 20,000 people. So you inject all of those passengers into that environment. And you generally inject half the crew because the crew don't get paid much. They generally do really live on tips and they rotate when they have shore leave. So they get off too. So you've got all of these human beings. Now, even if the ship says it's green, the ocean's ship, and we dispose of all of our waste appropriately and so on, It's just impossible to do that in a way that has zero impact on the environment. So don't take big cruises. If you want to take a cruise, come up with more money and take one of these cruise ships that has 200 passengers. A windjammer, if you want the experience of being on the ocean, don't go stay in huge mega resorts. They can be even worse than cruise ships, because especially if they are on septic systems rather than linked to a modern waste disposal water treatment system. So people say, oh, what you mean is all of a sudden I need to spend $300 a night to rent a vacation rental by owner place. No, most of the places that are beautiful along the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef and elsewhere in the Caribbean have families that will rent you a room with a bath or rent you a little cottage for about the same that it would wind up costing you in a condo in a huge resort, for example, or on a cruise ship. And you can shop in the market and buy fresh things. You can buy fish off the boat. You can interact with the people. It sounds like what you're saying is if you go to a resort, know where your poop is going, eat as many lionfish as you can. And when you get lobster at Red Lobster, it's not real lobster. 
So <laughs> we'll leave it there. I've got to ask you the last question that we ask everybody, which is to recommend two books for our audience to read. I would say if you want to appreciate some things about the Caribbean and the human part of the Caribbean, I would say read Elmore Leonard's Cuba Libra. It is a wonderful, roaring tale, like most of his, about the Spanish-American War in Cuba. Okay, so that's not nonfiction. That's fiction. I would also recommend reading almost anything by Jared Diamond. I'm currently reading his Upheaval. I think the understanding of human individual and collective action and how it affects and impacts society and the environment. I don't think anyone does it better than he does it. It's pretty depressing. I mean, go <laughs> ahead and have, <laughs> have the Elmer Leonard on your night table so that you can turn to it when you get too depressed by Jared Diamond. But those are the books that I'd recommend. Excellent. Well, Sandy Sheehy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your book. Thank you for sharing your wisdom about the ocean. And thank you for recommending Sounds of the Sea. Thanks, Lucas. This is Santiago Ramones adding the teaser for next week's episode because Lucas forgot to record one and asked me to do it. Next week, we'll be having poet, public speaker, author, and civil engineer Richard Blanco. You might know him from his books of poetry, like City of a Hundred Fires and How to Love a Country, or from reading poetry at Barack Obama's second inauguration. Lucas and Richard will be discussing Blood, B-L-U-D, by Rachel McKibbins, a book of dark, rhythmic poems exploring inherited things affecting their inheritors. Since I'm here, I will do the rest of the outro and say that you can find all things Book Society on the website, booksocietypod.com, at which you can sign up for a newsletter. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review, which really helps get more of this great literature into more people's ears. Book Society is hosted and produced by Lucas Cantor and co-produced by Santiago Ramones, which is me. I do all of the audio. And I have my own podcast called BitDeath, B-I-T space D-E-P-T-H, which is available in the same app you're listening to this podcast on. In Puerto Rico and Culebra specifically, the thing I remember the most is there are signs underwater. They tell you everywhere there's signs at the beach and there are signs underwater that say do not touch anything because some stuff is unexploded bombs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, because the Navy used to have a outpost in Vieques. I mean, this is not a happy story, but they would do target practice on the coral reef. And so there was just unexploded ordnance everywhere. So look, but don't touch. Mm -hmm.